You're listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients, Oh My. I'm Pyle Nanavati, and today's episode is discussing one of our all-time favorite topics, mental health parity. Before we jump in, I wanted to start by introducing a new host to the podcast, Megan Beaver. She is a Kroll healthcare attorney in our San Francisco office. We're going to link her bio in the show notes, but just wanted to say welcome, Megan. Hey, thanks, Pyle. I am excited to join you as a new host on the podcast. I must say it makes me feel both a little cool and nerdy at the same time, but I'm even more excited given the hot topic of mental health parity and our fantastic guests who are joining us today. On today's episode, we are joined by Alice Halpertika and Chris Flynn, who are both really steeped in all things parity related. They've seen a little bit of everything when it comes to parity, investigations, litigation, compliance issues, you name it. So I'm really excited to hear what they have to say today. So let's get started with a question for Chris. What is mental health parity and, and what types of health plans need to comply with parity requirements? Thanks, Pyle, and thanks to you and Megan for inviting me to participate today. As Megan mentioned at the outset, my name is Chris Flynn. I'm a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Kroll. I've been uh, lucky enough to practice with several of the people on this call on issues relating to mental health parity. And before I turn directly to answer your question, I do think it's important to understand the backdrop in which the MAPIA, the Mental Health Parity Act, is operating. We're in the midst since the COVID crisis of a mental health pandemic. And so the need for access to mental health as well as substance use services is at an all-time high. So it's in that factual backdrop that we're talking about mental health parity. I'm sure there's a formal definition, but the way I look at it is that to the extent that health plans cover mental health and substance use services, they have to do it in a comparable manner to medical and surgical benefits, meaning that an individual member's access to the benefits available under a health benefits plan cannot be more stringent or difficult to access than medical surgical benefits. The application of the of the act, the requirements of mental health parity uh, are both federal and state. MAPIA itself, the federal act, applies to commercial health plans, to individual health plans, to plans available under the exchanges, to Medicaid plans. It does not apply to Medicare Advantage or to Medicare fee-for-service at this point in time, although that may change in the future. Got it. Thanks for that background, Chris. And something you said, Chris, and I'm actually going to turn to Alice for this, is how MAPIA has to do with access and access that enrollees or members to health plans have to behavioral health providers. And something that we talk about in this space is treatment limitations. So Alice, what are the treatment limitations that parity apply to? Thanks, Megan. So treatment limitations include any limit on the scope or duration of treatment. And as you said, parity applies to treatment limitations. There are generally two types of treatment limitations that we think about. The first is what we call a quantitative treatment limitation or a QTL. These are treatment limitations that are quantitative in nature such as deductibles, co-payments, or visit limits or day limits. 
it, for quantitative treatment limitations, there is a mathematical formula that plans and issuers can use to determine if they comply with parity. The other type of treatment limitation is a non-quantitative treatment limitation. And the non-quantitative treatment limitation is where a lot of the focus by regulators is because it's not a mathematical formula and it is more difficult or at least more of a gray area when plans and issuers get around to trying to show compliance. So a non-quantitative treatment limitation would include anything a plan does in its operations that would potentially limit access to behavioral health services. This could include processes for prior authorization or other medical necessity reviews, how a plan or issuer uh, reimburses providers, or how a plan develops a formulary for pharmaceutical benefits. For these non-quantitative treatment limitations, plans develop what we call comparative analyses where they lay out through uh, various steps how their processes, strategies, factors considered in developing the non-quantitative treatment limitation are comparable and no more stringent for behavioral health services. Got it. So have there been any recent changes relating to the requirements for compliance with mental health parity that plans and issuers should be aware of? Yes. So there is a proposed rule that came out in August of last year, August 2023, that provides some guidance to plans and issuers that plans have been waiting for for a very long time. There, there are a lot of key changes in that proposed rule that if they go into effect would have significant impacts on plans and issuers that when they're looking to demonstrate compliance with parity. One of the most significant changes, if implemented and finalized, would be that there is a change to the test for compliance for non-quantitative treatment limitations that borrows from the test that's currently used for quantitative treatment limitations and would require plans and issuers to show that they meet this quantitative test for any non-quantitative treatment limitation that they have. In addition, the requirements under the proposed rule, if implemented, would mandate that plans include a lot more information in their comparative analyses, including extensive uh, data to support comparability in operation. For instance, if you have a plan that's trying to show parity compliance for non-quantitative treatment limitation like prior authorization, this would mean pulling data metrics that relate to approvals, and denials for prior authorization, as well as looking at you know, what services from a data perspective are subject to prior authorization. We have seen regulators request a lot of data in the past, and there has been a lot of focus by regulators on data already. But the proposed rule, if finalized, it would solidify that data is a required part of a comparative analysis and would require plans to continually monitor and evaluate that data to make sure that they are consistently uh, compliant with parity and to make changes if necessary, if there are discrepancies in the data. Thanks, Alice. And one thing you mentioned in this proposed rule and the requirements that's related to these comparative analyses, you mentioned in operation. And I know there's a distinction when we talk about parity as as written in operation. Can you give us a bit more detail about what we're talking about when we talk about those two different things? Yes. So to show compliance with parity, we have to show compliance, as you say, as written and in operation. So as written, we have to show that our processes, factors, and strategies are either the same or less stringent for behavioral health services. 
this would mean looking at your policies. How do you have a policy for prior authorization? What does it say in there? How do you decide what goes into prior authorization? This is really looking at how you've written everything down and how you set the process. Is that comparable? The second part, though, is comparability in operation, which means that you also have to show that you are being comparable as you're actually implementing these policies. So it is not enough to just say we wrote down this policy and this tells us what our factors are, this tells us what our process is, and it says it's the same. We have to actually demonstrate that as implemented, it is comparable. And many times this requires that data analysis that I mentioned before, where we actually pull data to look and demonstrate to regulators and support that, look, the data shows that we are not being more stringent for behavioral health benefits. And for that reason, we should not be found to be not in compliance with parity. One of the things that Alice just noted, I think, is really important, which is at least initially, the agencies were stating that the processes had to be comparable for determining coverage of mental health and substance use services next to med services. I think a lot of watchers in the industry are starting to conclude that maybe that's not enough, that you actually have to show that the results, certain treatment limitations, non-quantitative treatment limitations, that you have to yield similar or almost the same results based on the application of certain limitations or utilization management practices for both mental health and medical surgical services. I don't, sitting here, think that's what is intended by the Act, but it certainly seems to be how it's being interpreted by some agencies and you certainly get more of a flavor of that through the data requirements in the proposed rule. That's really interesting, Chris, that feedback to hear that how this rule may have morphed over time as it's at least being interpreted by the states and different regulators. And in general, you know, what has the feedback been from the industry as to both the proposed rule and even how plans are having to show compliance with the proposed rule when they're getting inquiries from regulators? From the industry, and by the industry, I think you're probably referring to the managed care industry. First, the amount of comments to the proposed rule are overwhelming. There's uh, over 9,500 comments, which raises the question, when the rule becomes finalized, when will it be effective? How much change will, will there be as a result of the comments, and when will it become effective? Second, I think what you're seeing certainly from the payer side of the industry is this is an overwhelming task to comply with the various requirements of the proposed rule. We know that carriers are expending a huge amount of resources, manpower, dollars towards ensuring compliance with the proposed rule. Amounts of time and energy that go far beyond regulatory compliance in other areas. Not to say that that's good or bad, but just putting that out there as a fact that compliance with the proposed rule and even the existing regulatory framework requires an enormous amount of effort on behalf of the health plan industry. Adding on to what Chris said about the massive burden associated with compliance. 
it is really important for plans and issuers to be proactive in getting their house in order in terms of parity compliance. The proposed rule was technically had an effective date of January 1st, 2025. It's not clear if that would be the date that any final rule would be effective. But even regardless, we are already seeing regulators expect plans and issuers to comply with the standards that are in the proposed rule. But we also saw in the proposed rule a statement that regulators would only give 10 business days to plans and issuers to provide comparative analyses and to respond to any inquiries about those comparative analyses. Again, this is not effective, but we are seeing plans and issuers have a short turnaround time for these requests. And we expect that that will only continue to get shorter and for plans and issuers to be afforded less flexibility. If I could just add to Alice's point, plans have to understand at this point that when you get a request under the CAA for comparative analyses, they have to be ready. This is not something on a 10-day turn or some very short turn if it's under state law that you're going to be able to create a comparative analysis. As Alice noted, we are seeing really detailed scrutiny from both federal and state regulators as to the quality, the format of the information that is provided in these comparative analyses, including, as Alice noted, both as written information and how these NQTLs are operating in operation setting. This is a situation where all health plans that are subject to MAPIA have to have the comparative analyses in hand, updated, and ready to hand over because these requests have been coming. They will continue to come in the future as well. Alice, you discuss how plans need to have these comparative analyses ready to go. We often talk about having off-the-shelf ready-to-go comparative analyses. When plans are getting these requests, what do they look like and who are they from exactly? So requests can come from a number of different regulators. On the federal side, the Department of Labor, as well as CMS, uh, we also see requests from states. Under the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, plans and issuers are required to have these comparative analyses on hand and to submit them to regulators upon request. And the Department of Labor was obligated to collect a certain number. We can see the amount of requests that are coming in based on an annual report to Congress that the Department of Labor and CMS issue. And we are seeing that they are issuing hundreds of letters to plans and issuers requesting comparative analyses for hundreds of NQTLs. For example, between February 2021 and July 2022, they issued more than 200 letters requesting comparative analyses for 470 NQTLs. Also in this report to Congress, the regulators expressed that at this point, plans and issuers should be ready and that the expectation is that plans and issuers have learned over the last couple of years what parity looks like, what the documentation should look like, and they are not giving as much leeway, uh, not that they have given a ton of leeway in the past, but they are not giving as much leeway going forward based on these expectations. Got it. And Alice, what happens if there is a final determination of noncompliance? Or what does noncompliance look like from the regulators if they're not happy with the comparative analyses? 
the regulator would first issue what's called an initial determination, at which point the plan would have a 45-day period for a corrective action plan. If at the end of that time period, the regulator is still not satisfied with the demonstration of compliance, the regulator would issue the final determination of non-compliance, which opens up a seven-day period, which is a very short period, in which the plan must notify all enrollees in the plan about the fact that they've been found to not be in compliance. And then, as mentioned, that results in the plan being named in that report to Congress that I mentioned a second ago. So it's not from the federal perspective, and Chris will talk a little bit more about what's possible on the state perspective, but from the federal perspective, the federal government cannot issue a monetary penalty, but they can require the plan to send out this letter and they can name them in the report to Congress. One other thing we see in the proposed rule is that they are also saying in the proposed rule that they would have the authority to tell the plan to stop applying that non-quantitative treatment limitation until compliance has been achieved. This could be used to broadly impede plan operations, and it is unclear the scope to which not applying the non-quantitative treatment limitation would apply. So this could be an expansive interpretation of the department's power here. So we talked a little bit about federal regulators and enforcement here, but could we be more specific about which regulators are involved in enforcing parity at the federal level and the state level and what that enforcement looks like? Sure. Thanks, Pyle. As Alice noted earlier in, in her response, we're certainly seeing enforcement from the U.S. Department of Labor, from SOSIO on the federal level. And at the state level, we're seeing it uh, from state departments of insurance, state Medicaid agencies, and state attorneys general. And I would argue that the state level of enforcement has been every bit as active as the federal enforcement has. To your other question is, what does that enforcement look like? Well, you've got the CAA request, which Alice mentioned before, which is give us your off-the-shelf comparative analyses, and then they're measured against current regulatory requirements. We also get a lot of CIDs at the federal and state levels. When you get the CIDs, it's from my perspective, and I'd love to hear from Alice on this, those investigations are truly investigations. They're different than a CAA request, and the burden on the carriers is pretty significant. And the other thing that we're seeing is intervention in lawsuits relating to parity issues. And that's scary for a health plan, because not only are you facing damages and coverage issues, but you have a regulator that's also a participant in that proceeding. Chris, that's right. We're seeing a lot of different types of enforcement by different regulators. And it seems that whether it's the state or whether it's the federal government, they're very active. I think one thing we've also seen is instances in which we have CIDs requesting information and then coupled with a comparative analysis request. There are instances in which these different processes have been combined what we do see is a lot of regulators have interest in this area, and they are continuing to learn and adapt as they request information and investigate plans and issuers and learn more about parity and about plan and issuer functions. 
it's a really important point. And I want to follow up just for one second on uh, the issue of the state's role in investigating parity. I noted earlier that it's robust. Well, what does that mean? I think I was taken by surprise early on in comparative compliance about how active states were, both at the department insurance level, but also with attorneys general looking into these issues. And by the way, attorneys general have coextensive regulatory authority over carriers under their authorizing statutes. They can enforce any law of the state. And so we're seeing a lot of action from AGs. Also, both AGs and departments of insurance can fine carriers under their plenary authority. And we're seeing sizable penalties, not related to substantive parity violations, but a failure to document parity compliance. So there is a lot of risk out there when you get an inquiry at the state level. The other thing that was surprising to me is the states are taking on this role because there's a lot of federal funding to state departments of insurance to investigate parity issues. That has resulted in agencies, state agencies, bringing in third-party consultants that are assessing parity compliance. There are questions, quite frankly, in certain instances about the objectivity of those consultants and kind of what their role is. Are they substituting in for a Department of Insurance or do they have a more limited role? We've seen both. Also say that these issues come in different ways uh, on the state side. The other thing we're seeing is parity issues are raised as part of market conduct exams. And that's something that happens in every comprehensive market conduct. There will be issues addressing parity or it will be a specific exam just to address parity issues. And then finally, there is also parity enforcement on the Medicaid side. I would suggest to you that it's been less robust than on the commercial side, but even on that front, we see more intensity in terms of parity reviews than we have in the past. Thanks for that, Chris. Now that you've kind of laid the groundwork of what you guys are seeing now, what types of challenges do you see going forward? We can expect that some form of the proposed rule being finalized. And I think we can expect that plans will continue to have a lot of questions about what's in there. While there are some ways in which the proposed rule does provide more guidance, it also opens up a lot of questions. And plans will continue to struggle to figure out how to meet the standards and how to communicate to regulators about their processes and how things operate uh, and how that works and fits into a parity framework. We also continue to see different templates and expectations based on the regulator. Different states may have templates that they are using or expectations, or as Chris mentioned, different consultants. And so we can expect at this point to continue to see plans needing to figure out how to adapt to the expectations of different regulators. But, you know, at a minimum, plans will need to make substantial changes to their core health plan processes in order to meet the high expectations that regulators expect with respect to those non-quantitative treatment limitations. I think all of that is right. I think that 
what goes with that is a higher cost to the customer, for example, private employers to the ultimate consumer, the health plan member. That's an inescapable result of the level of effort required under both current MAPIA compliance standards, as well as what's coming down the pike on the proposed rule. I think the other thing that Alice touched upon is spot on, which is carriers have to be evaluating the proposed rule right now, understanding those portions that are most likely to be incorporated into the final rule in preparing for a compliant product going forward. This is not a situation, as I noted before, where you can wait till the final rule is published and then begin your compliance efforts at, at that point. There's just too much in the rule to put together an effective compliance plan on a short term. So, Chris, would it be fair to say that, you know, one takeaway as we're wrapping up here is encouraging plans to be in a proactive state? when it comes to MAPIA rather than reactive? Yes, mate, that's exactly right. But it's not easy because the regulatory requirements are so substantial that just dealing with what's currently on the plate of health plans is a lot in and of itself. But quite frankly, what it requires is added manpower a part of plans, both on the behavioral health and on the med surge side of the house to ensure compliance with current state and then what we're going to see down the road. I agree with that all completely. I think additionally, beyond the effort being onerous, it is hard to know exactly what parity compliance means. As, as I talked about at the beginning, with the quantitative treatment limitations, there is a test and you know whether you meet it or not. But when we get to these non-quantitative treatment limitations, there is still just not enough guidance for plans to know exactly what compliance means, and frankly, for regulators to know exactly what compliance means. At this point, the answer to where, where are we going and what is the uh, gold standard that's going to show parity compliance on a going forward basis under these new rules in the future is just not clear. And that is additional complication for plans as they work to do the best they can to comply with the requirements. All right. Well, thank you both for joining us for this episode. Thank you. Thank you. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll and Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast.